While Germany's actions during World War II were atrocious and the consequences as just as they could possibly believe, what is justice after what happened there? They were still one people, one country divided into separate parts. Decades later, as we saw in the video, the people of West Germany longed for unity and for the tearing down of the Berlin Wall with their East German, East Berlin family, neighbors. In 1961, when the wall that was there went up almost overnight, families and friends were separated permanently based on which side of the wall you lived. One people with one history going back thousands of years, the same genetic and ethnic heritage, one unifying German language, and yet for decades they were two separate cities, two separate countries whose leaders were hostile toward each other and on the brink of war all the time. This is what life was like in the 1980s if you weren't there or if you've forgotten. Many people gave up their lives trying to get over the wall from East Berlin to West Berlin, from communism to democracy. And Ronald Reagan and millions of other peace-loving people in the world wanted the wall torn down and Germany united once again. And this is where we find ourselves this morning in our journey through the book of Romans. There's a division in the church between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul, like Ronald Reagan in the Cold War, is working tirelessly day and night to tear down the man-made divisions between God's people, the professing followers of Jesus Christ. We've been working through the New Testament book of Romans for a while now. And in our current series, Anguish and Hope, we are covering chapters 9 through 11 of the book of Romans. It was a letter that Rome wrote to the Christians living in Rome. And we're in the middle section of the book. Well, Paul's been talking about the struggles of his people, the Jews. Paul is Jewish. But he has been sent to proclaim salvation to the Gentiles, which was a rare thing, which was a new message. And he's been encouraging his Jews to accept this new gospel message of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the promised Jewish Messiah that the Jewish people had been waiting for. But he came with this new message. And this message was and is a message of salvation for all people, Jew and Gentile, with no distinction between them anymore. And most of the, Jew, the Jews who had been God's special people for centuries would not accept this new message. Even the Jews that did put their faith in Jesus Christ, they struggled deeply to let go of their old ways and to be united with their Gentile brothers and sisters in the faith. And this is where we pick up this morning in Romans chapter 10, verse 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what it does say, the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, 
Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, as I'm sure you observed in our reading, this passage, like other passages in Romans, and specifically this middle section of nine, chapters 9 through 11, can be a little confusing. The way Paul structures his sentences, the way he asks his questions, his use of parenthetical comments and quotations, not to mention the complex material and topic he is teaching about in the first place, all serve to complicate and possibly confuse us in our passage this morning. But fear not, with the grace of God, I pray, uh, I hope to help us sort through what exactly Paul is saying, and then most importantly, what the Holy Spirit is saying to each of us here today. Now this passage, these verses are divided up into three general sections. And the first section are the verses 5 through 8. And this is the most confusing part of the passage But in the passage, the main theme that you want to remember as we're reading through are two types of righteousness. Paul states them very clearly. There's two distinct types of righteousness, and then he describes them in a weird roundabout way. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. You have the righteousness that is based on the law, as Paul describes it in verse 5. And you have a righteousness that is based on faith, as Paul describes it in verse 6. Paul uses these four verses to draw a distinction between these two types of righteousness. Can we go to the next slide? Now, there's a double negative in the passage that can confuse us, but in verse 6, when he says, the righteousness based on faith says, and then he quotes, do not we know he is in fact saying that this do not is exactly what the righteousness based on the law does in fact say. Clear as mud, right? He's describing the righteousness based on faith. He said the righteousness based on faith does not say, and then he gives something. But by saying that the righteousness based on faith does not say, he's saying that the righteousness thus, the righteousness based on the law is saying this. He's speaking to the people who are supposed to live by faith and warning them what the righteousness based on the law does say. And what is it that the righteousness based on the law is saying exactly? It asks two questions. Amongst other things, it asks two questions. The first is who will ascend into heaven, and the second, who will descend into the abyss or hell. Now, one of the things that we human beings do that is really bad and undermines the work of God in our lives is that we are always keeping score, right? We're always keeping score. Is this fair? Is that fair? What have they done? How can they do that? Am I doing better? Are they doing worse? We are always keeping track. We're always keeping score. It's the human thing to do. We are always trying to measure up. And if not trying to measure up to God, and we kind of resolve that we won't be able to do that, then we do it with other people, trying to find some personal satisfaction or affirmation from the tearing down of the others or lifting up ourselves by comparison. We assess other people to do one of two things. 
either to be critical of and to judge them, or we assess other people to be critical of and to judge ourselves. But our assessing of other people only ends in one of those two directions. And this is all the more true for religion. Herein, we exude rivalry, judgment, favoritism, scorn, and we are so easily offended. One of the big turnoffs of the church over the years has been the judgment that outsiders have felt from Christians or professing Christians when they walk into their churches on Sunday morning filled with people whose first instinct is to compare. Do you dress the right way? Are you looking the right way? Do you know where you're going? I'm more comfortable than here. I have, I'm much more established. than. And those thoughts go and go, and they come through. And sadly, so many guests have come looking for God, and they've encountered. That law, that righteousness of the law, and what comes out of that. We may have come to God at one point, hopeless, helpless, desperate for the salvation through Jesus Christ, and have even received that by the grace of God, but over time, we have morphed, and we now think that this place and what happens here and what we do here is for us. It's for me. We've forgotten how desperate I was when I first walked the doors, when I first came to God. In our flesh, that is our humanness. That is what we do all the time. We are self-indulgent, self-centered machines, always working to make it all about us whenever we possibly can. That is what sinful human beings do. And this is what Paul is addressing here. Paul, people asking about who is going to heaven and how well are they doing there? And then who is headed to hell? Not doing so well in their religious efforts? Both of these questions are more concerned with others than ourselves, and consequently, they fly in the face of grace. Grace does not concern itself with other people because grace is God's undeserved favor towards me. I'm the problem, and God in Christ has forgiven me and helped me not be the problem, not given me a pathway, an avenue to determine how other people are the problem. It's Jesus' adage, take the log out of your own eye before you remove the speck out of your brothers or your sisters or your neighbors. But, but we're people, and that's what we do. Then in verse 8, Paul talks about the righteousness based on faith. And how does he describe it? Well, very simply, and I love this, and at first I was like, this is confusing. As I first delved into this passage and was studying it, I was, it was confusing, and I wanted more. But this is what he said. He gives the quote, The word is near you. And as I spent time, and I dwelt on this, it's a beautiful description of the life, the righteousness based on faith. Because that is all we need to focus on. The word that is near us. God, through his Holy Spirit, is with you and me right now. Not just generally present in this room because we're a church and we're gathered and he promises to be here, but he is in us as his children. And he is at the ready to provide whatever we need in this moment. That's the type of God that he is. That's the spirit that he has given to us. And this happens through no merit of our own. 
but by his grace alone. This happens through no merit of our own, but by his grace alone. He has given us himself every morning and every day for when his children need him in whatever capacity they might find they need him. God illustrates this so beautifully in the Old Testament with the story of manna. Anybody here know what manna is from the Bible, from the Old Testament? Many of you do. Well, let me share with you a little bit about manna and what it is. When the people of Israel were stuck between Egypt and the Promised Land, wrestling with God and as he was preparing them to be his people in this Promised Land, they were wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, and there wasn't much food to be had. And they always complained for food. We're going to starve. We're going to die. We're going to waste away. Not trusting the Lord. Not trusting that he would provide. So God decided to give them a daily provision of food called manna. And manna literally means in the Hebrew, what is it? And what manna was, if you don't know, it was this doughy, bread-like, crackerish substance that fell on the ground each morning just like dew falls. And on Sunday through Friday, it would fall. And you, the people were instructed, collect just enough manna for one day. Put it in your jars, in your containers. Use it as your base food throughout the day. And I will provide it again tomorrow. Because the Sabbath they observed was Saturday. On Friday, he would tell them to collect double, but only on Friday because he didn't want them working on the morning of the Sabbath. If you didn't get out and collect by midday when the sun came out, just like the dew, the manna would burn away. If you didn't get out, get up and collect and collect your manna, you didn't eat that day. If you tried to collect extra and put extra manna in a jar to sleep in the next day, when you woke up the next morning, the manna had spoiled terribly and was inedible. Inedible. It's a beautiful picture then for us today about the grace of God that is reaffirmed time and again in the New Testament. God's grace is given to us today. God does not promise you tomorrow today. He doesn't promise you a thing tomorrow. He says, in fact, if you dwell on tomorrow, you're going to miss today. You could starve of my presence today if you're too focused on tomorrow. And if today you try to store up and you forget tomorrow, for tomorrow without facing tomorrow when it comes, you're going to miss out as well. This is the righteousness of faith. This was one of the ways God was trying to teach his people to live by faith. Stop worrying about tomorrow. Stop trying to figure everything out. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Stop trying to store up for yourself something that I will give you freely tomorrow. Just follow me. The word is near you. And the Jews especially struggled terribly with this change from righteousness based on the law to righteousness based on faith. Now let's not just single out the Jews here because we struggle with this as well. We struggle with this because it eliminates us from the process. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's not just a Jewish law thing. When you make it a righteousness based on faith, it removes you and I from having power and control and any sense of oversight of the process. We are required to wake up every day to come open-handed before God and say, God, I need you today. What would you have me do? How would you have me love my wife? How would you have me care for my children? How would you have me honor my boss? 
How would you have me turn the other cheek towards my very ornery neighbor? How would you? And so how does God accomplish this? How does God accomplish this change? How does he take people who are consumed with the righteousness of the law and turn them to a people who live by the righteousness of faith? With what I call the equalizer. The equalizer. Now I'm not talking about Denzel's recent movie and sequel, although you know I'm a big Denzel fan. But I'm talking about two beautiful verses here in chapter 10 of Romans, some of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible, and I will gladly read them to us again. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Why is this equalizer here? Why is this verse right here after the four verses he just talked about, about the struggle with the types of righteousness? Because there are harsh divisions in Paul's day, just like there are harsh divisions in our day. And this verse is the equalizer. It levels the ground amongst people who will put walls between, who will divide who will, will think they're better than or think they're worse than or do what we instinctively do as human beings even in the church as the children and the people of God. We have socioeconomic divisions. Some of us right here in Afton. Afton is a pretty blue-collar area of St. Louis. Some of us in this room are from Afton. We're from outside Afton. West County, Sunset Hills, Fenton, Ladue, some other place. Maybe we belong to more of a white-collar community. Maybe that's our peeps and where we, we grew up and where we reside. Should it matter? No. Does it matter? Absolutely. We think about it all the time. Just the, this picture alone brings up in some of us some angst. Look at those guys with their shirts rolled up, just chilling there, leaning on the desk. How could they do that? Don't they know that I work for a living? Those poor saps. They get dirty every single day and they come home. What an annoyance. The thoughts are there. Somewhat connected to that is the division caused by where we are from. Here in St. Louis, it's often referred to as, what high school did you go to? Here in St. Louis, that one question can tell us a lot. You can look at those two signs, and you can draw the distinctions, if you're from St. Louis, about those two people groups. I'm not even from St. Louis, and I, know, I now know the distinction. Thank you, St. Louis. I appreciate helping me learn how to judge people from a high school that they attended. We don't do that in Michigan. Not that we're better, we just do it differently. <laughs> we can size a person up pretty quick or so we think, but the temptation to judge a person based on their answer is right there in our mind and in our heart. And not disconnected from that, we are divided racially. It is no secret to anyone here that we are predominantly a Caucasian church. Now, granted, we are planted in a Caucasian area, but we would love more diversity. But so would every other church. It has been the case for a long time that Sunday morning is sadly one of the most segregated times of the week anywhere. Not only that, but the culture is widening the lines between us racially. And more and more each year, 
our country is becoming, the term they're using is more tribal. And what that means is there are more and more dividing lines and barriers between people, separating us into smaller, more hostile groups towards each other, rather than unifying us and bringing us together. Technology and social media and our modern whatever we want to call it has not brought us together. It's further inflamed the issues that divide us. And the one we're never supposed to touch, political division. At no point in my lifetime, and I've been very engaged, even back to my young years, have people been this divided over their political views. Many of you here would like to see our, our current president gone from office, and you're annoyed that you're possibly sitting in a row or just in front of or behind of somebody who wants to see him succeed. Many of you here who want him to succeed are annoyed that you're sitting in a row next to, front, or behind someone who would like to see him removed from office. He can be a very divisive individual, but it's politics. It's not heaven. It's not eternity. And if we come in here looking to offend or to be offended, and we deny the greater bond that joins us, we play into the division wall-building world that's out there. Not to say we should never talk about politics, but can we talk about it with a spirit of generosity towards each other? And for some of us, that's really, really, really hard. I don't want to say impossible because all things are possible with God. We're coming up on another election, and we have opinions, and we have thoughts, and we have outcomes that we're hoping for. We need to be thinking about this division, and we need to be rejecting the tendency to divide and to pull away. I saw that person's T-shirt. I'm having nothing to do with them. I, I know where they live. I saw a sign in the yard. I'm not having anything to do with them. And it rolls and it rolls. And then there is a divide that is almost too terrible to mention here in this place of worship. Will it ever end? Will there ever be unity amongst brothers and sisters in the faith who find themselves on opposite sides of this most heated conflict? Is that picture gratuitous at all towards the Cub fan? <laughs> I, I need to acknowledge there's a third trophy added to that collection. The picture is a couple years old. So it's outdated. They picked up their third title a couple years ago. So they won most recently. I'm not even from, I have a dog in the fight. I'm from Detroit, all right? It's not my fight, but I've seen it up close. Paul sees the division in his day between Jews and Gentiles, and he knows how people are. He knows that we are going to innately develop our own rule system, our own morality, our own code. It doesn't have to be written in the Old Testament. You and I develop this code each and every day of our lives, and we bring it, we project it on other people. We take this rule and this law and this command and this thing that my mom taught us and this thing I just learned on myself because I'm a smart person that other dumb people don't know. And I've based my own Jeremy Zilke moral code. And I use this code. I use this code to do three things. One, to prove that I'm almost always right. Not always right because that would make me God and I'm not God, but I'm pretty close. <laughs> Two, I use it to impress God. Because God's often impressed with my moral code and how well I keep it. When I don't keep it, well, that's not really a big deal. He's just really impressed when I do. And that's often. 
because it's my code. And we use this moral code to do a third thing, prove when others are almost always wrong because they don't match up to the world that we've created. This happens in this body. I have been attending church since I was an infant, and I have seen it every church, at every place, at every stage of life along the way. We are not exempt. In fact, sometimes we are the worst at exuding this. Romans 10, 9, and 10 levels the ground. It should humble all of us. It should humble all of us. We are by grace found in the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And all of us can as freely and easily get there as the next person. No one of us has to work harder. No one of us has to go longer. It is as simply available as confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and truly believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you too are saved. And this leads us into an authentic faith, our third section, verses 11 through 13, where Paul emphasizes this. Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Five words used to break the divide to remind us that we all are desperate for the grace of God and that we all are saved by the same humble faith and that therein we are one in Christ. One. Not segmented, not tribalized. We're one. Genuine faith recognizes my tendency to build walls and divisions. Genuine faith rejects the tendency to judge others and elevate myself in comparison to them. Genuine faith rejects the idea that somehow I earned this spiritual blessing. I'm here, they're not. I must be better than them. I must be liked more by God than them. That I now possess and live under this spiritual insight, this wisdom. My life's getting better. Their life continues to be terrible. I knew it. I always knew I was better than Those are our thoughts. Those are our real thoughts. And I know this most of all because I am as self-righteous as they ever have come. As I said, I've been raised in a church of a very religious upbringing, and this religious upbringing has served as a wall in my life, a wall separating me from the grace that God had for me. Sure, I accepted Jesus when I was four. I prayed the prayer I professed Jesus as Lord, that he died for my sins. I received him in. But ooh, I love the standard of the church I grew up in because I was a smart little kid and I could learn the Bible verses and I could read people pretty well. And I knew what would get me praise from people in a church setting and I knew who wasn't quite there. And in my insecurity, I could make myself feel better by criticizing them and thinking poorly of them and getting the spiritual pride. I remember praying prayers specifically for the purpose of impressing people in my youth group. Look at how well I'm praying. Other people are afraid to speak up, not me. I must be righteous in the eyes of God. And on and on and on. It's a lie. It was a wall between me and God, and it made me incapable, in 
capable of loving other people. It was the most judgmental, critical person that I've ever known. And I didn't love the lost. I didn't love that lost person because I didn't, they deserved to be lost. I was better than them. You see how this wall divides not just us and God, but us and other people. And so God's telling us, just like Reagan, tear down this wall. What's the remedy for these walls? What's the remedy for us in our wall building? We're really good at these divides between us in the body, in the neighborhood, wherever. What's the remedy? Those two beautiful verses. Those two beautiful, wonderful verses, Romans 10, 9, and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And that's it. That's all. That's what God asks. He did the hard work. He did the Herculean effort. He simply asks us to confess, to repent, and to believe. That's all. And we deceive ourselves to think it's more than that. We deceive ourselves to think somehow I got to do something more than I got to do. And God says, no, all are welcome on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so this morning, that's what I invite you to. Maybe my list of divisions and prejudices and whatever things might have come up in your heart and your mind, like, ouch, ooh, mm, yeah, mm, that was me, ooh, oh. Don't be afraid to go there. Go there. Call it out. Proclaim it. Repent of it. Say, yes, Lord, this is true about me, and I repent. And I humbly come before you at the foot of the cross, professing with my mouth and believing in my heart and again receiving the salvation and the forgiveness that is mine in Christ. Freely for me, freely for all. And that's God's invitation to us this morning. That's how we break down the wall. Going back to the beginning, going back to the basics. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled that it is so simple. We are humbled that it is so easy. Well, it's not so easy, actually. Because so many of us are so consumed with ourselves and we've made ourselves such the center of our world that taking us off the pedestal, removing us from the center of our existence is itself a Herculean effort. But you give us the power and the promise to do so if we will come and confess and repent and believe And I call my brothers and sisters this morning to do just that once again, to confess and to repent and to believe. That there are folks here who do not know about this, who have not encountered you before, Lord. I pray, I let them know right now they can confess and repent and believe and they can have the divisions in their heart and life torn down as well. So God, we ask in the name of Jesus and humility that you would do that work in us. Allow us to be your authentic faith children. And just to, to know that you're near, you're right here, 
your word is near. And we can run and play and follow and be the child who follows after his father. Lovingly trusting wherever you, our father, might lead.